Hey, before we begin today's show, to meet those New Year's resolutions and to get fit in 2020, you don't have to join a gym or pay a ton for overpriced fitness equipment. The best way to get in the best shape of your life is with Echelon. Go to echelonfit.com to discover their EX1 connected fitness bikes that offer high-quality at-home cycling experiences at less than half the price of Peloton. Echelon makes beautifully engineered products for everyone. Busy moms, dads, and everybody in between. First responders, elite athletes, whatever your activity level. And with daily live on-demand studio classes right in your home, you'll never have to step foot in a gym. You'll love Echelon, but if you aren't 100% satisfied, we'll give you your money back. Join the hundreds of thousands of men and women who are getting fit with Echelon. Don't pay a ton for Peloton. Buy an Echelon bike today for under $1,000. For more information, go to echelonfit.com slash hoop to learn about their limited-time free Apple iPad and complete details of that exclusive offer. Echelon, it's your time. That's Echelon, E-C-H-E-L-O-N, fit.com slash hoop, H-O-O-P, echelonfit.com slash hoop. And again, real quickly, if you haven't listened to the latest episode of the Woj Pod with Spurs guard Patty Mills, I really think you should because if you've been wondering how you can fight against those devastating wildfires that are currently raging in Australia, which is where uh, Patty is from, then he'll tell you how. As always, remember, you can find the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget while you're there to subscribe, rate, and review the Hoop Collective. Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective. It is Sunday afternoon as we were recording this, and we are doing it Sunday afternoon because our man Kevin Pelton is sweating bullets and will be otherwise occupied Sunday night watching the Seahawks take on the Packers. Now, by the time this podcast posts, or the time a lot of people um, will be listening to it, Kevin, they will already know what happened to your Seahawks. Uh, so this will be an interesting moment. Do you feel confident? This is a great moment for you to preemptively get a prediction, either look terrific or look like a fool. You know, I, I'm all about the uh, the coping mechanisms. So I, my expectations are very low with the Seahawks playing in, in the freezing cold against Green Bay's pass rush. I feel you. Uh, and joining us from Austin, Texas, is Kirk Goldsberry. Kirk, do you have a dog in this uh, fight? You don't care? I don't care. I I will say have you I have adopted the Texans at all? No, I'm a, I'm still a Patriots guy, which I know makes people hate you right away. Let me say that I do <laughs> love watching football at Lambeau Field in the playoffs. So, in that sense, I'm excited for the game. It's Not actually guys. attending the game. Sports. No, that's a great point, Brian. Because from the comfort of my warm living room, I love to watch Lambeau Field. So I'm excited. For can I game. offer a Can I offer a smoking hot take that'll potentially get me in trouble? Yeah. Always. I've seen a game at Lambeau Field, and I, I'm not happy. I don't. I don't really like it. <laughs> I think it's overrated. Oh, overrated. Wow. I think the um, the the fact that it's in a neighborhood is awesome. I think like the uh, the experience of attending and of actually like uh, the approaching you know parking in a neighborhood. You know all the all the little cottage, like little houses that have little. Um, uh, parties and stuff. I think that's awesome. I think once you get into the stadium, everybody's sitting on benches like it's 1926 and they have like 11 stories of suites wrapping around the upper decks 
and I'm supposed to think this is some sort of old school situation with 700 suites surrounding it, sitting on benches. <laughs> I mean, once you put the suites in, how about getting rid of the benches? It's like one of the, it's one of the most <laughs> uncomfortable games I ever, I ever went to. So there's a, um, there's a Hall of Fame, a Packers Hall of Fame within the building that I think is really cool. I went to, but, um, sorry, I apologize to the fine folks you know, of Wisconsin. But, uh, we're gonna start with Wisconsin. So right after the uh, Packers fans are, are angry at me for my disrespect of uh, Lambeau, um, Saturday night the Bucks won in Portland quite easily. Uh, Mr. Pelton, you were at the game. Um, and it was their 41st game of the season. And they are sitting at a lovely, damn impressive record of 35 wins and 6 losses, which means they are directly on pace to become the third team in history to win 70 games. Their numbers are just spectacular. They are uh, now. There's a whole slate of um, games that are going to be played Sunday night. So depending on when you listen to this pod, there could be some variance. But they're number three in offense right now. The, the Rockets were past them last night when they uh, put up 140 on the uh, the Timberwolves. Um, number one in defense. And number one in net rating, uh, their net rating, which is, you know, the points they outscore the opposition by over a hundred possessions is 11.7. Um, I, when I was on the jump this last week, I had the stats people look this up for me. There's been, I think, 13 teams, uh, that have had a 10 or more net rating in, uh, in history and, uh, 12 of them went to the finals. Um, and the only one who didn't was, uh, this will hurt Kirk, I'm sorry, was the Spurs team that lost to the Warriors their 73 win year, which may have been the, one of the best Spurs teams in history. Um, set the team record for wins that year, I think, right, Kirk? Wasn't it 61 yes. or 60 wins? Um, so the Bucks resume, I think they're, I think that net rating, uh, 11.7, if, you know, there's a long way to go, but that would be the, one of the top four of all time. Um, or top five. I mean, it varies by day. Um, the, the closest team to them is the Lakers, by the way, at 8.1 and then the Celtics at seven. Um, so they are, uh, about four points better per 100 possessions, which is a lot. Okay, in this in this neighborhood um, is a lot um, uh, than the closest competition. Um, so let me start with you, Kirk, because you wrote a, a story this week um, that was titled Four Things Different About This Bucks Juggernaut" as opposed to last year's Bucks Juggernaut um, when they won sixty games were and knocked out in the East Finals. So let me just ask you. Um, First off, I want you to tell me why you think they're actually going to win 70 and whether or not you think this team is following in the footsteps of those other teams and is getting to the finals like the stats are telling us they they will. I don't think they're going to win 70 because I don't think they're going to need to push on the accelerator into March and April. I think there's probably going to be some rest for Giannis. There's going to be some rest for Brooke. There's going to be some rest for Middleton. But they could win 70. Um, they're that good, and the Eastern Conference, there's a lot of wins to be had. One of the reasons their statistical indicators are so good, that's a reflection of who they play, and they play the Eastern Conference more than the Western Conference. The Lakers have great statistical indicators and play in the Western Conference. 
Um, I think they're going to the finals, though. Let me say that. I think they're clearly the best team in the Eastern Conference. And if they don't go, it should be viewed as a failure. Um, I think this is by far the best team in the East on defense. And it looks like they're the best team in the East on offense. So to add to your historical precedent of just how great these statistical markers are, Brian, there's only been two teams that have been top three in both offense and defense um, in the NBA that since 2000. Both of those were Warriors championship teams. Um, so those are the statistical markers of a team that's going to the finals, I would say. I would say the things that I highlighted there, why are they different this year? The biggest thing, Brian, is they're, they're, they're just a year older. Last year was Budenholzer's first year. Giannis was 24 when they lost that playoff series. I mean, Michael Jordan didn't get to the finals till he was 28. Steph, 27. LeBron got there when he was younger, but didn't win till he was 28. I mean, Giannis is 25 years old. Uh, he's added the three. Um, they have a different rotation this year. And here's the stat that I would, I, I would sort of end my sort of reasoning with. With Giannis off the floor, the Bucks are posting a net rating of plus 6.8. Pelton knows how good that is. When you look at the other teams around the league, the Lakers without LeBron are a negative team. The Rockets without Harden are a negative team. The Clippers without Kawhi are a neutral team. The Sixers without Embiid are a neutral team. The fact that the Bucks, when Giannis sits, are still almost a, a seven on the net rating, which would be third or fourth in the NBA, tells me that the second tier players are getting it done on both ends too. Uh, and their defense is actually phenomenal without Giannis on the floor. So I think between all of that stuff and, and the sort of relative uh, mediocrity of some of the Eastern contenders right now, particularly Philadelphia, uh, they should expect and we should expect them in the finals. I, I think that's a good Pelton, place to start. They, they, whipped the, uh, they whipped the Blazers last night, so you saw them on a good night. But what do you see? Well, there's been a lot of good nights. I mean, uh, you know, as you laid out there, they're having one of the best regular seasons of all time. And, you know, one of the things that I said I think irks me a little bit when we have this conversation about the Bucks and the playoffs is there's this notion, you know, people will say that they're built to win games in the regular season. And their depth is certainly a factor of that. But I, I don't think this is comparable to say, you know, that Houston team a couple of years ago where Harden's playing a ton of minutes and playing every night and, you know, regular season wins and getting the number one seed really seems to be a, a goal for the, the team. I don't think it is for Milwaukee. I think they're just so good that they're going to get the number one record and one of the best records in NBA history, despite not really prioritizing it. I mean, Giannis, I think we can agree at this point, is the favorite to win MVP again. If he does so, he will be by far, by far play the fewest minutes per game of any MVP in NBA history. Uh, his his eighteen nineteen was the second lowest on that that board at thirty two point eight minutes per game. Steph, the first year he won MVP fourteen fifteen, played thirty two point seven minutes per game. Right now, Giannis is barely playing thirty one minutes per game. Like they are not not pushing him anywhere near to stunning, the extent that other stars around stat. the league are. And He's it's because averaging- of the fact that. He's averaging 30 points, 11 rebounds. I'm sorry, uh, 13 rebounds and six assists. Now, granted, those are totals. That's, you know, what you're, you know, those are counting stats. But to average 30, 13 and six in 31 minutes, I don't know if that's been getting mentioned enough. That is a stunning stat. Um, I'm sorry, just to, just to, just to, didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I just wanted to point out how crazy yeah. his numbers in those minutes are. 
And maybe that's part of why it's not getting as much attention that he's not playing very minutes, many minutes, because you look at the rest of his stat line, it's not evident that he's not playing that many minutes. But, you know, the reason Milwaukee is able to do it is what Kirk said, is the, how well they've played with him on the bench. And it's fascinating because, you know, I think the conversation about the Bucks often is they don't have that second guy. Chris Middleton was an all-star last year, but, you know, he's not in the same realm as Paul George for the Clippers, is Anthony Davis for the Lakers, the two other top contenders, you know, for the championship. Or even if you look at Philadelphia, uh, you know, as much attention as they got before the season with the combination of Embiid and, and Ben Simmons. And, you know, maybe I think you could argue that, you know, in terms of career, Al Horford is a much more accomplished player than Chris Middleton. He was their number three guy. So it, it's fascinating that despite that second clear all-star caliber player that they're still playing so well. And I think that's testament to the the depth of this team and then the system that Mike Budenholzer has put together at both ends of the court where, you know, a lot of these parts on the wing are largely interchangeable and, and everyone comes in and, you know, they play a defined way and they play it quite well. Yeah, Kirk, in that story that you wrote, you focused on how um, by the advanced numbers, they have the top three interior defenders in the league with Giannis, um, Brooke Lopez and Robin Lopez that, and you put them together, you know, most of the time there's at least two of them on the floor. Um, they're just very difficult to score on inside the paint. Um, you talked about their depth. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot going for them. Um, you know, one of the things a couple weeks ago on this podcast, I mentioned that I didn't think the teams were afraid of the Bucks. That, that despite their incredible numbers, that I, I, I just didn't see the wow factor when you played against them, um, that they didn't scare you. And I immediately heard from some people in Milwaukee with the organization who were not, it wasn't that they were, you know, angry. They just, they wanted to point out some things. And one of them was that, uh, which you just mentioned, how good they are with Giannis off the court. The second thing is they think that they're, that they've kind of, survive some some they think there's room to grow um you know middleton missed i think uh five or six games with an injury maybe it's a little bit more than that um i'm having a brain fart uh a blood so sorry blood so has missed some games um due to injury um some of their guys who they think are better three-point shooters um such as pat Connaughton um and brooke lopez aren't shooting the ball great from outside this year you know brooke lopez shooting just 29% on threes this year. Connaughton is also shooting a career where it's not the Connaughton plays that many minutes, but they're expecting, you know, last year Lopez shot 37%, shooting 29% this year. So they actually feel like um, those guys might shoot better in the second half of the season and, and play better. Um, but here's what I'm going to tell you when I talk to other players, because since I've said that and got the pushback, I've been asking some some people – you know, what do you think of the Bucks? And one of the things that uh, I have been told is, look, Giannis, for as much as he is improved from three-point range, is still very susceptible. He shoots 32%. He does not shoot 42%. Um, and that, yes, against the Lakers, that game where they played that big game in Milwaukee a couple weeks ago, he hit five threes. Um, that the Lakers strategy would probably, if that was a playoff series, the, the strategy would not change for game two. They would continue to ask him to shoot out there. And if he could do it four games in a series, you know, that would prove it to him. And, and that otherwise they think that's a strategy just to force him out there. And that, 
uh, that he hasn't proven he can do it over and over. And the other thing they point out is that Giannis shoots 61% from the free throw line. Mm-hmm. And so a strategy in a series would be to, if you can do it, it's one thing to, to, to say you can do it. It's another thing to actually keep him from doing it, from getting all the way to the basket and just getting a bunch of and ones. But basically to foul the hell out of him and uh, if when he comes in and then otherwise keep him outside and make try to make try to make him make threes which is which is somewhat the way that teams played him in the um in the uh world cup last last year in china where he was relatively ineffective and, and generally miserable and so um I, I, I guess I come back to what I said before, which is that there will come a moment, I believe, where Giannis will grab a playoff series by the neck and say, I don't care what defense you play. I'm just better than what you can do, and I'm going to take it. And maybe that will happen this year. But because it has not happened yet, everything that you guys just said about the Bucks, they still lack, despite all those numbers, they still lack scaring their opposition. Kirk, do you think that is... Because your point on your piece was that just because that's the way it was last year that Toronto beat them four straight, you shouldn't assume that it's going to be that way. Is that is that a fair criticism or a fair expectation of what could could dog the Bucks when it really matters? It is totally fair because you know if you look at the three games they lost in that Toronto series, everybody when they think of that series for the rest of eternity will be like, oh, Nick Nurse put Kawhi on Giannis. And then the Raptors won four straight. Like it or not, that's the narrative coming out of that series forever. Um, if you talk to people around the Bucks, they're quick to say, you know what? We didn't shoot free throws. Uh, Fred Van Fleet and Norman Powell were out of their minds. <laughs> we look at this as a couple missed shots here, a couple missed shots there, and we're in the finals. Um, but to your point, I think one of the great under-told stories and one of the big weaknesses with this team is exactly what you said, Brian. Giannis cannot shoot free throws very well. Um, if you want to be the best interior player in the league, you have to shoot free throws better than 61%. He hasn't had this problem his whole career. Three years ago, he shot 77% at the line, dudes. He's gone down the last couple of years. That's scary. Um, Hack-a-shack is in our vernacular for a reason. If you are an unstoppable interior force that can't shoot free throws, when it comes to playoff times, guess what happens? Hack-a-shack. And, and he shot, and this is a stat that just, when I reviewed the series, he shot 40 something percent in the three close losses they had in that four game stretch against the Raptors. Um, they had three games where they lost by six points exactly in that series against the Raptors last year, and Giannis made less than half of his free throws. That's Shaq like stuff. That's DeAndre Jordan like stuff. Um, unfortunately, it goes along with being a really dominant interior player in the history of the sport. Um, but so does getting intentionally fouled in the playoffs because of it. So I do think if I'm advising John Horst and, and Mike Budenholzer over the next year or two, it's like get Giannis's free throw number back to 75%. And this is the, the teams won't be able to say that what they said to you, Brian, um, because it's exactly what we saw in last year's playoff. They Giannis particularly left too many points at the free throw line. Um, that said, I do think it's different. Let me let me end with this. There's no Kawhi Leonard in the Eastern Conference. That dude moved to California. Um, the Celtics are a great story, probably the second best team in the East. Um, but the Bucks chased them off the floor last year in five games. Um, and that was with Al Horford. So who's, who's going to defend Giannis 
in the playoffs on the Celtics? I think that's a real fair question if you're saying the Bucks are going to the finals like I am. Um, that said, yeah, I think there's some weaknesses here, but I, I keep coming back to the experience thing. This is the second year for the Budenholzer regime. Giannis is 25 years years old. Let's give these guys a breath. And I'd finish with this last point. Nobody thought the 14-15 Warriors were going to blow through the playoffs like they did. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Pelton, that's one thing um, somebody said to me is, you know, uh, you could be sleeping on the Bucks, and this could be the beginning of a of the Bucks era, like it was the beginning of the. Uh, several people have compared this season to me to the uh, fifteen sixteen season. I'm sorry, the fourteen fifteen season, where right. you know the, uh, the you know the the Heat had broken up, and it was kind of wide open, and and it was the Warriors who swooped in and grabbed grab control of the league um some people have told me that that could be the bucks and i mean if Giannis starts going on a run of winning three four five mvps maybe that is the case is that but you know thinking immediately this year are you as bullish as the uh first off do you think they're going to win 70 and secondly are you as bullish as kirk based on what you see so I think based on the experience of the, the next year's Warriors team that won 73 in the regular season and then lost in the finals, I think that the Bucks not only are they clearly not going to push for regular season wins, I think they might actively like try to sabotage their chances of winning 70, even if they have to sit out Giannis more than they would otherwise. Just because yeah, you don't, don't like, want to like be in the last week of the back. season and have 68 or, you know, be, or, you know, be really, uh, you know, put pressure on to try to get it. I know, I know what you're saying. Yeah, it's like almost a distraction at this point, a negative thing. I mean, even though, you know, looking back, given the championships the Warriors did win, also having the, the single season record kind of adds to the mistake of the dynasty. But I feel like that's not going to be the Bucks' goal, having not yet won a championship. So uh, I don't think they're going to get there. I, I do think that they are likely to make the finals. I mean, I think, you know, one thing we need to talk about here is that everyone is pointing to the Sixers. They had that big win over the Bucks on Christmas Day when they shot so well from three and Milwaukee couldn't make it three. But are the Sixers even going to get there to a series against Milwaukee at this point? I mean, that's an open question. Well, the, the fear that the I would have of, is that if I'm the, if I'm the Bucks, then I might have to play round? the Sixers in the second round. Yeah, you'd probably um, rather have that be as late as possible and have as much mileage on Embiid at that point as you can, but... You know, they're not going, it looks likely now with Embiid missing a couple of weeks probably that they're not going to have home court advantage in the first round. Like they, they'll still probably be favored in that series, but they're no sure thing just to get out of that given how strong the top six is. Well, especially East because is. Oladipo is coming back. Right. Correct. You could, you could, I mean, I don't know what Oladipo is going to be, but you could potentially say that the Pacers are, are more upwardly mobile than the Sixers. So. But uh, two thoughts on the Bucks in the playoffs. Number one, it, as much as the Bucks have focused on Giannis shooting threes, and that is the important part of his skill development, I, I got to say, I, I would like to see him work a little more on his in-between game, because I thought that was an issue in the Toronto series, that he would still be able to penetrate the paint, but you know Toronto would be able to wall up around the basket and force him either to choose between kicking out to you know a, an okay but not great three-point shooter or shooting... You know, trying trying to drive into traffic, which you know could lead to charges, getting him in foul trouble. He didn't really have that pull up, that floater game that the best guards in the league 
do have to have, even though those aren't, those aren't necessarily high percentage shots in and of themselves. And we haven't really seen any change from him in that regard. It, going back to that Christmas Day game against the Sixers, yeah, he shot 0 of 7 on threes in that game, but he was also 2 of 8 on two-pointers that were away from the rim, missed a number of shots you know, in that kind of 8-foot range, was about 0 for 6 on those shots. And those are the ones I think that I would like to see him make more of in the playoffs. Uh, my second thought on the Bucks in the playoffs is I think a really crucially important guy for them that is not getting talked about a lot inevitably is uh, Dante DiVincenzo. Because if, you know, with Malcolm Brogdon in, in, in Indiana, if we see the same kind of struggles from Eric Bledsoe as we've seen the last couple of years in the playoffs, I think DiVincenzo may have to be the guy to step up for them. He's one of those players that falls into the category of okay but not great three-point shooter. He's at 33% from the season but has become an excellent defender. Uh, is someone who, like Bledsoe, does really well driving against the the cleared out second side when you know the ball is reversed from one side to the other, and you know the defense is already loaded up to deal with Giannis on the strong side, and he's an excellent defender. So if he can get get to up at like thirty five, thirty six percent from three, I think he he could be a really crucial player for them in the playoffs. A guy who's never played in a playoff game, but uh, yeah. did have a lot of experience at Villanova and you know performed well in big so, games. Yeah. Um, all right, well, I want to pivot to another uh, team that's getting talked about a lot right now, but a specific player. Um, I think we're going to hear quite a bit about him, if certainly over the next three weeks, and then depending on what happens with him, a lot after that. And that's Kyle Kuzma. Um, Kuzma's had uh, quite the season. Um, he missed the first uh, couple of weeks at all of training camp as he was coming back from a, from a foot injury that he suffered over the summer. Um, really didn't play great and then suffered another injury and missed another handful of games. Um, and he's just, you know, he just hasn't been getting a lot of time. All of his numbers are down, but his minutes were way down. And then in the last few games, Anthony Davis went out with that, um, you know, uh, after that terrible fall. I think he had played over 30 minutes twice this season. And I think both of, the, both of them was like exactly 30 minutes. And he had been only averaging about, uh, 22, 23 minutes. Um, the last two games, uh, wins in Dallas and then a just stunning blowout victory over the Thunder without LeBron and AD um, in Oklahoma City on Saturday night. Kuzma's played mid to high 30s, played 30, played 40 minutes at, at the Thunder and had the two best games of the season, 20, 26 points uh, in Dallas and that really nice win where it was never a game, and then 36 points um, seven rebounds at four, six threes in one of the most impressive wins I've seen in the entire NBA this year. Not that the Thunder are the uh, 2011 Thunder, but they had been playing great recently. Might have had a little bit of a come down after that victory over the Rockets, but even still, the Lakers blew them out in that game, scored like 90 points in the first uh, three quarters. Um I don't know what the Lakers are going to do here. We talked about this on the pod a little bit um, last week. Kuzma is their best trade asset, and I'm just going to say that there is conflicting information out there about him. I've talked to three or four different teams who have told me Kyle Kuzma is available for trade. Um, he can be had. Um, uh, there, have other, there have been reports elsewhere, and other people elsewhere have said that the Lakers have indicated they do not want to trade him. Um, I think this is a very difficult player to judge. And Kevin, I'm going to start with you. And, and the reason is Kyle Kuzma has 
undefined upside. He's a third-year player who's shown incredible uh, flashes of brilliance at times. Other times, we've seen deficiencies in his game. He doesn't do anything at an elite level, but he does a lot of things well. And if you're looking at a player like that, this is definitely a guy that you expect to get better over the next two or three seasons. And And this is one of those guys where it's hard to come up with a contract number for him because you don't know whether he's instantaneously going to get better or not. So, you know, not that he's a similar player at all, but you look at a guy like Jalen Brown, Jalen Brown's role changed a lot because the difference, you know, in, in his teammates, his first three seasons in, uh, in Boston came time to extend him. And it was a hard negotiation and they ended up giving him a hundred million betting that he's going to get he's going to he is not the player that he is now that he's going to get better and boy does that look like a great investment Demodis Sabonis same situation been on different types of teams had different types of teammates real hard negotiation how do you pay him the Pacers paid him bam he's exploded both of those look really good Kuzma is in the same boat I have really not sure what you're going to pay him and the reason I'm bringing that up Kevin is because as you evaluate what his trade value is and you're a late, you're the Lakers who are, you know, have the second best record in the NBA behind the Bucks are thinking about trying to win a championship this year. Um, do you, do you hang on and think that the bubble's going to come and he's going to jump forward? Or do you try to cash him out right now in case he doesn't go for, because this has not been a great year for him and get a more established player that you know could help you win a championship right now. And that is, that is got to be a central thing that is being discussed by the Lakers. And I don't know what the right answer is. How do you see it, Kevin? So to me, what the last two games showed you uh, is that Kuzma's best value is he's a guy who can create shots at a high volume with reasonable efficiency. That's what he did last year when LeBron James was out of the lineup and he, not Brandon Ingram, was the Lakers' leading scorer in that stretch and, you know, really the guy who stepped forward. It wasn't until kind of later in the year that Ingram started breaking out and portending what we've seen from him this year in New Orleans. But if you've got LeBron James and Anthony Davis, you don't have need for a volume score. That's not the kind of role player you need. You need the kind of guys that they brought in this offseason, you know, the Danny Green types, the 3 and D players, and that's not... Kuzma's game particularly. He's only at best an okay three-point shooter. He's Even though he can defend multiple positions, he's not a quality defender. So yeah, I think I probably would be looking to cash him in, particularly if there are teams that look at these last couple of games and say, hey, this is someone that we can bring in and really you know, give a shot in the arm, give a boost to our offense with his ability to create shots off the dribble. Kirk, how do you evaluate him? Well, I would say if he was as interested in, in making players around him better as he was in his uh, Zoolander cosplay, then he'd be uh, have a lot more trade trade value. This guy, he doesn't show up night to night. He, he shows up in a fancy outfit, and that's cool. And kudos for that. But I'm not in. I'll explain why. I think he's gotten worse, not better, uh, in his last few years statistically. His assist numbers are atrocious. Um his shooting numbers have fallen to off a cliff. Um, and it remains to be seen if he can be a good player on a winning team. I think we've seen some, some, some good numbers, bad team kind of stuff out of him. Um, but as we're seeing it right now, Kevin pointed a lot of this out. I mean, he shot barely 30% from three last year. Um, and I think 
there's nothing there that makes me believe he has much trade value. Is he a roster player? Is he a rotation player? On almost every team in the league, the answer is yes. But why would another team trade for him? Who would trade for him? Uh, and what would they be willing to give up? Those are the real questions at hand right here. Um, well, he's older you than you think he is. He's older than you think he is, Brian. He's 24 years old. He's almost as old as Giannis. Uh, so he, he's not a young player. Um, he, he's, he, what are we getting? We're getting a guy who's a kind of average defender who can kind of shoot, doesn't pass very well, uh, doesn't rebound that well, uh, but does have glimpses of great scoring potential. So let me, like, I, I'm not, I'm not, I mentioned the other day that, you know, one of the possibilities that could be out there would be a Robert Covington for Kyle Kuzma trade. Um, and if the, Wolves, who are playing better defense the way they got obliterated by the Rockets Saturday night notwithstanding. I don't know if Kuzma would actually be available, but I can understand why a team like Minnesota, who is, you know, more in need of young players to develop than they are of, of, uh, of a guy like Covington right now, um, I can understand why they might be interested in a guy like Kuzma. Um, this is a classic scenario in what I get back to. If you're the Lakers, okay, and your big problem is, uh, my gosh, do I have to have somebody who can defend 40 minutes of Kawhi Leonard and 40 minutes of Paul George in a series? Not to mention the other challenges that you would need. Um, but, you know, if I'm the Lakers, my central thing is how I'm going to defend the Clippers. Um, and I think, boy, I know that Robert Covington is 29 years old. I know that Robert Covington is a role player. You know, he averages 13 points and shoots 36% on threes or whatever. Um, I know he's had some, some knee or, you know, I, you know, he's said he's had some injury history. Um, you know, or you have a guy like Kuzma who could really blossom. Um, that's a hard thing to do, but a, a guy like Covington, and by the way, I know that they wouldn't work straight up for each other in trade. You, you know, there are other couple other pieces that the Lakers potentially would have to include. But the, the, a trade is, is, is theoretically doable. And even if it's not Covington, even if it's a different player, even if it's a guy like, you know, Jay Crowder, for example, um, do I go for the guy? Like, you know, Robert Covington would, like he's not stopping Kawhi, but you are better off going into a Clippers series, I think, with Covington than you are with Kuzma. Now, two, three years from now, you're probably better off with Kuzma, I would guess. But the other thing is with Covington, you have a guy who's under contract for the next two years at like twelve, thirteen million, who was a trade asset who you could could potentially move on, whereas Kuzma only makes two million and it's difficult to aggregate him into making a deal. And 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 going into a series with Danny Green and, and Covington and LeBron his options are pretty interesting. Like, you know, Kirk, you've worked in the front office with the Spurs. This is a pretty gigantic decision that the Lakers would have to make about which direction to pivot there. And, um, you know, just, just philosophically beyond, beyond Kuzma, the player, you know, when you were with the Spurs, you guys were competing for championships. Like this is a, a tough decision, especially since, you know, if they trade Kuzma, they don't really have any more young assets to trade. Um, and their draft pick situation is highly depleted because of the Anthony Davis trade. It's a it's a pretty gigantic decision to make. Well, and you saw what they did in Cleveland with with LeBron firsthand. I mean, they emptied the cupboards, and there's <laughs> like you're saying, there's one more thing in the cupboard. Uh, and when do you empty that? If you empty that, because Kuzma has a favorable contract, and it, you know they're not just competing for a championship this year. 
they're competing for a championship for a few years or, or beyond, I think, is the organization's hope. I don't know um, if they can get Covington for Kuzma, but that's a very enticing trade. I believe they would be a much better uh, team with, with Covington against the Clippers. Um, but they're going to do that analysis. They're going to do the salary comparison. And then it's not just for this year. That's what I'd say. It's not just for, can we get it done this year? They have to look at next year and the following year, too, uh, and look at those horizons. And the players have horizons, and their contracts have horizons. And I would say Covington's a nice piece. Um, defensively, he's probably a major upgrade. And he's shown the ability to shoot and catch and suit situations, uh, and LeBron creates a lot of those. Uh, so he'd be a nice piece. So that's the kind of thinking. Who fits next to LeBron James? Off-ball defenders that can help this defensive juggernaut continue into the playoffs or even improve against great teams. Uh, but also who can contribute in an off-ball way on the other end of the court. And those are catch-and-shoot guys. So who are the best 3 and D guys? Ariza's too old these days, but who are the, who are the equivalent, you know, the P.J. Tucker types? Um, and Covington's one of those guys on a bad, bad team right now. So that, I think, Brian, that's a great name. Um, if I'm the Wolves, I'm not sure I'm doing that deal. Uh, but I'd be interested in, in Kevin's opinion uh, if, if that's kind of a plausible exchange of talent. Um, and are there other names they should be looking for around the league if they're shopping Kuzma? Yeah, I mean, Kevin, I, I heard of a fascinating. Uh, now, I want to be clear to all the folks who are listening. I am not reporting that this is a that this is a discussion. Okay, we got that clear. But I had a, a, a an executive say to me, um, "Wouldn't a Kuzma for Laurie Market and trade be interesting?" I don't, I don't know if I'd do that if I'm Chicago, given the investment they have in him, particularly as, you know, part of the return for Jimmy Butler. I mean, I think that's a fascinating idea. Well, I don't, I don't know if they want to pay Markinen. I think that's a challenge, hmm. but, uh. I mean, I think one of the interesting things for, for the Lakers would be, is there a way that you can sort of extend Kuzma's value out a little bit? Uh, you know, especially if it doesn't mean trading him for a draft pick, because one of the things that I think happens is, even though he becomes a lot easier to match salary, if you sign him to an extension, then I think he loses a lot of his trade value because a lot of it right now is based on the fact that he has such a bargain contract, $2 million this year, $3.6 million the next. So, you know, if there's some way you can flip him for another young player who potentially fits a little better but also could have that future trade value, I think that would be ideal. But at the same time, as much as, you know, Kirk says they, they're competing for championships in the next few years, you look at LeBron's age – Tomorrow is not guaranteed. I think you probably have to do what you can to try to win a championship this year, especially, you know, this is not last year when they're fighting just to make it into the playoffs. This is a team that's going to have the number one seed in the Western Conference, but we do think potentially still needs to add another couple of pieces uh, to, you know, be able to compete with the Clippers and potentially Milwaukee if they're to get to the finals or whoever comes out of the East. So that's why I think you definitely have to explore this. I think the challenge is going to be, I, I think that there are teams that value Kuzma a lot more than Kirk and I probably do. I think the teams that look at him as a really quality young piece. The question is, are those same teams going to be the teams that have the kind of players that the, that the Lakers need around LeBron? Well, one of the teams that has a piece that the Lakers would like is the Memphis Grizzlies. They would love to get their hands on Andre Guadalla. Um I think even Drake Crowder would, Drake Crowder would be great, although Crowder did not play well at all yeah. with LeBron in Cleveland. Was it disaster. I hope he welcomes that reunion. That's right. That's I don't right. think he does. Um, and uh, McMahon, Tim McMahon, who was on with us the other day, McMahon's pretty tied into Memphis, and he even hinted that 
Now, Memphis may not be, may, Memphis may want to keep Jay Crowder because they like what he's done for their team. So he may not even be available. Um, but the Memphis Grizzlies have been one of the most pleasant surprises of the season. Um, there's a whole bunch of games tonight and, you know, things may change, but right now they're in eighth place in the Western Conference. Um, but beyond that, they have a couple of dramatically, uh, impressive young players and, you know, Every year we spend so much time talking about tanking. We spend so much time talking about, um, you know, the importance of the draft and all this stuff. And this is a classic, classic example of it. I mean, the Memphis Grizzlies ending up with the number two pick last year and having a guy like John Morant right there. I mean, um, you know, you know, there's a, the Cavs will sit here and tell you that, uh, they are very excited about Darius Garland, and they think that they've got the makings of a, of a great backcourt going forward. But, you know, that's just two picks different, Garland versus Morant. Um, similar type players. Look at the difference, uh, you know, and I know Garland's younger, but just look at what a difference, you know, a couple of draft slots can make. Um, Morant is just been amazing. You, If you listen to this podcast regularly, you heard me wail about how even with the low expectations that we have amongst shooters, about amongst shooting stats for rookies, um, that it's almost everyone in their career is lowest shooting, that this rookie class has been particularly egregious. Well, Moran is the, is the exact ex- exemption to that rule. He has been efficient. He has shot the ball great. Um, one of the things that blows me away, guys, about him is – how well he operates in traffic. This is one of the things I had never seen him play live until the NCAA tournament last year, and I realized that was a small sample size, but it blew me away how many plays he made while double-teamed or triple-teamed. He was able to set guys up, and boy, has that carried over to the NBA. The amount of things that he can do with bigger guys on top of him. Like This is one of the things, like I remember when Lonzo Ball came in the league, you know, because I watched Lonzo in person a couple of times in college, and um, uh, I just felt like that when he got to the NBA, the size just of everybody just really bothered him. I see John Morant, and I see him making plays against size in traffic, and I mean these are the things that I'm watching, and I'm like, wow, 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 wow. Not to mention the fact that he's just a fearless, fearlessly goes to the basket. You you know hunts. For, for, for contact. And, um, you know, so, you know, you pair him with Jaron Jackson, who looks like he's going to be a quality big man for the next 15 years. Um, you know, borderline all-star type player, if not an all-star. And then the other two young guys that they've picked up, Dylan Brooks out of Oregon, who was a second round pick last year, who has turned into a real piece this year. And then, uh, Brandon Clark, who they moved up in the draft to get, um, or they move up or they moved around, but they got him in the draft, a uh, big man who is a really good defender and can do things offensively. Again, looks like a great piece. Um, you know, Kevin, you have been watching them a lot lately, and, and I, I get the sense that you're pretty impressed with what they have going as well. Yeah, I think this is fascinating because this is a team we all came into the season expecting Okay, they're going to be bad again. They're going to make sure they don't give this draft pick that's top seven protected to Boston. 
And, you know, maybe in a year or two, they're going to start contending because of the fact that after they've stripped off the, the remnants of the grit grind era, uh, with Conley going out to Utah this past summer after Gasol went to Toronto at last year's trade deadline, you're thinking we're at the start of a rebuilding process. But, you know, kind of similar to Oklahoma City, but, you know, more unexpectedly because you don't have guys like Chris Paul and Danilo Gallinari on this roster who are veterans who came in in trades. Like, this is a team that is very much in the mix. And uh, you guys talked about San Antonio's playoff push last week on the pod. Well, then Friday night, San Antonio goes into Memphis and runs into this Grizzlies buzzsaw in the second half that, you know, takes them down and moves ahead of them into the eighth playoff spot in the in the West for the uh, for the time being. It's, it's kind of incredible to watch. Uh, one pro- player you didn't mention who probably deserves to be put among this group as well is uh, D'Anthony Melton, who they got from Phoenix in the Josh Jackson trade, taking by, back uh, Jackson's salary this year, so Phoenix could clear just, enough They just told Josh Jackson to go Uber. away. Yeah, uh, and he's played quite well in the G League. We'll see when he makes his reappearance into the NBA. It doesn't sound like it's going to be with Memphis. But D'Anthony Melton has turned out to be the, the gem of that trade. They're, they've got a plus 10 net rating with him on the court. He's uh, someone who only played one year at USC because of the fact that he was implicated in the Adidas scandal that the FBI investigated uh, and therefore was ineligible for a second season. It's hard to keep track of the scandals at USC. It's hard to keep track of the scandals in college in general at this point. But yeah, so he, he was kind of you know a sleeper because of that, but someone who as a freshman had really popped in my statistical draft projection because of his high steal rate. He's got extremely long arms. He's not really a true point guard, not a great shooter. He reminds me a lot of Marcus Smart. He's not quite as in-your-face defensively as Marcus Smart is, but someone who also makes a lot of plays at that end, hits enough threes that you can play him off the ball. And the combination of them playing him and John Morant together has really been quite a quite a good one for the Grizzlies. Kirk, have you, what have you um, seen from the Grizzlies? I mean, they're, they're, they're on the QT. They've got a, a coach in Taylor Jenkins who was kind of a surprise hire. Um, I think the second youngest coach in the league after uh, Ryan Saunders um, hired from my Mike Budenholzer's staff. So we're talking about a, a raw head coach, even though he's well regarded, um, who's done a pretty good job too. I mean, they've they've exceeded expectations pretty much across the board. Yes, uh, and my coaching friends are impressed with the coaching staff in Memphis, which is great because you're saying it was a kind of a random hire. Um, like I saw the the Spurs game, they put up 134. They can score. Um, I will say my my sort of 10,000 foot assessment of the Memphis Grizzlies is this is the team that has the best pairing of very young players in the NBA. They have two fantastic 20 year old players, um, and that is a good thing in the NBA. Ja Morant, I think Brian, you you said it all. The guy is electric. He's one of my favorite players to watch in pro hoops already. Um, if he has a leap or two in him, which I think everybody expects him to, look out. Like He is going to be one of the best guards in the league. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about Jaron Jackson because this guy, let me tell you this stat because I found this the other day and it floored me. Jaron Jackson Jr., a big, athletic 20-year-old. So far this season, 98 players have taken at least 200 jump shots in the NBA. Duncan Robinson has the most efficient uh, return on those shots. Davis Bertans is second. Those are the guys we would expect to see. Those are the types of guys. Jaron Jackson is third. J.J. Redick is fourth. Joe Ingles is fifth. 
Jaron Jackson Jr. is crashing this list of guys that we think to be the best shooters on planet Earth, the best catch-and-shoot guys, because he is shooting over 40% from three, and he's not taking any dumb mid-range shots. I'm telling you, he is the perfect player to sit next to an athlete, a paint-attacking young point guard like Ja Morant. And by design or by accident, Memphis has locked in or lucked into this pairing of incredible 20-year-old players uh, that will be a problem in the Western Conference for years to come if they stay together, grow together, uh, develop together. We'll be talking about Ja Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. for a decade. Now, what I would say is this year, maybe they make the eighth seed and lose in the first round. Maybe they don't. Uh, but if I'm a Grizzlies fan, I don't really care about this year. I'm just psyched that I have these two guys, and let's keep them together. And we have a whole—the the 2020s could be, belong to these dudes um, in three or four years. And that's how good I think they are. By the way, Brandon I Clark, the guy that— they mentioned out of out of Gonzaga, um, he shoots it. I mean, he does not. He doesn't shoot from volume, but he shoots it pretty good too. He's older. Mm-hmm. He played, I think, four years in college, but um, he shoots it as well. Yeah, he's a um, he's a great shooter as well. Um, and then he's one, one one random thing one. I would say is Valanciunas, who a lot of people expected to be sort of annoyed there. He's fighting every day. He's there. He's he's putting his hard hat on, doing what jo- Jonas Valanciunas does. And they signed him to a pretty fair contract. I think it's fifteen million yeah. a year. Yeah, um, that uh, should give them flexibility. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kevin. Uh, yeah, Clark is number one in rookie warp, so he's right there with John Moran as well in terms of contri- contributions among rookies. To get two of those guys has been pretty awesome. I, I think it's been fascinating to watch Jackson's development this season because, you know, one of the questions I had about taking him in the top five when he was at Michigan State, as much as I liked his game and it popped well statistically, was, you know, is this ever going to be a guy who can really create his own offense for himself? Because that was not what he was asked to do whatsoever when he was playing on that really good Spartans team. He, they had Miles bridges they had you know they had a a number of uh quality players on that roster so he was basically like a secondary option for them was just spacing the floor but one of the things he's added this year is on the strength of that shooting that kirk talked about uh a hard left hand drive to the basket and he's one of the most left hand dominant players in the league despite being a natural righty which is interesting but he's using almost 25 percent of the team's possessions while he's on the court this season which is pretty incredible given the small role he had at at uh michigan state and i think portends well for his future alongside john morant so the question i had based on this is if you look at the grit and grind grizzlies they got to the conference finals but never won a game there what are the odds that the John Morant, Jaron Jackson Grizzlies have a higher ceiling than the the grit and grind teams? Hmm. Impossible to say. It's a long way to get to the Western Conference Finals. Um, it is. Um, you know, I think the, the big thing for them will be, uh, and, and like their their front office, by the way, also wasn't pretty you know, inexperienced is Zach Kleiman who took over. I mean, Zach Kleiman was, was, um, uh, a lawyer, <laughs> uh, or is a lawyer. Well, you know, he was a lawyer with the league office and some other places. And, you know, he's leading their basketball division, Jason Wexler, who, um, it's, I think, you know, he's the head of their basketball operations as well. He was their, the head of their business side who added, I mean, like they've made terrific decisions uh, from coaching to the draft, to everything, and we just didn't see it coming. And um, I think it's just a 
it's really. I, th- I think if you're a Memphis fan, you should be really excited. Um, I mean, I, I know all those Memphis Tigers fans were all let down when uh, uh, James Wiseman uh, decided not, not to continue playing. But you know, take an opportunity and watch these young guys grow. And the other thing is because their pick goes to Boston and it's outside the top six. It's not like they can go for it. Just go, go try to win every game. I think they have Utah's pick. I think it's protected. Maybe lottery protected, but I, they got Utah's pick in the Conley deal, if I'm not mistaken. So they will have a first round pick this year. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, they own, they only get it this year if, if it's at the back half of the lottery. So that they probably will not get it this year. Oh, they will the not. Way Utah's, get it. Utah's one of the hottest teams in the league. 13 of the last 15. Yeah, uh, we probably should have talked about them, but we're pretty much out of time. <laughs> but, uh, they've won I have, one, I have so. one, I have one thing for Memphis fans. To be a little bit worried about, and I know we got to go soon, Brian. This climate of superstars in small markets getting constantly talked about about which big market will they go to. <laughs> Both John Morant and Jared Jackson Jr. are probably the next up after Giannis or some other people I can't think of all at the top of my head. Well, oh, Carl Towns, we'll, I think, is ahead of them in the packing order. Oh, yeah, there we go. Kyle Kuzma. So Towns, Kuzma. No, but they're already, he's already there. You know, will this guy go to the Knicks? Will he go to the Clippers? Will he go to the Lakers? Will he go to whatever? Uh, John Morant and Darren Jackson Jr., if they stay in Memphis for years to come, are guaranteed to get that treatment. And that, that's something to worry about and be annoyed about if you're a Grizzlies fan. Let's put I it think this that way. qualifies Over as a good last, problem. That's just true. Over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen a number of teams sell everything they can to get two top five picks in a row or three or four top five picks in a row. Um, we saw the Thunder draft three consecutive MVPs in the top five. That's sort of the – not consecutive, but they draft them in consecutive years. That's pretty much your dream scenario, although that's another topic we won't get into. We've seen a whole lot of other teams draft two guys in the top five that didn't work out for them or was sort of kind of okay. Um, Philly has two two top five picks that are doing pretty well, but are interesting to see if they'll stay together long term. This is two top four picks that is what you dream about, which is two guys who have potential to be cornerstones of uh, your team going forward. So um, that's that's something to uh, for their fans. And by the way, they're not they're, they're they're not playing in very big minutes. You know, Kevin talked about minutes with Giannis earlier. They're they're not you know they're, they're protecting these guys on minutes. They're, they're playing them both less. Nobody's on the team's playing more than thirty minutes. So it's not like they're riding John Morant. For 41 minutes a night to get to this number they're, they're playing them 29 and a half minutes a game 30 minutes a game um all right well i really enjoyed this one guys thank you kirk thank you kevin good luck to your seahawks uh kevin i hope it goes well and thanks for listening to the hoop collective podcast